Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, friends, today we celebrate the feast of the holy name of Jesus. What struck me a few days ago when I was praying about this, I was like, man, even his name gets a feast day. Like, wow. His name gets a feast day. Yesterday we contemplated here in class, I don't know if it was the morning or the evening at all. Yeah, it blurs together. We contemplated how God has a face. Today we contemplate because he has a face, he has a name. Like God has a face and he has a name. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible Father. He's the face of the Father. And what we talked about yesterday is where is that face most eloquently, most powerfully on display, but the agony, right? How paradoxical, right? That when the beauty of the Lord is most radiantly shining, right? When Jesus says, now is the hour, the hour of glory, it's the hour when he's spat upon, when he's crowned, when he's punched, when he's bleeding, when he's bruised, when he's mocked. Like, pause and consider for a moment that of all the scenes, of all the moments, of all the images that the church in her iconography could have chosen to depict the bridegroom, the image that the church landed on is Jesus in his mockery, robed, crowned with thorns, scepter in hand, in the midst of his passion. Right Of all the scenes, that's the scene. When the olive is underneath the press in Gethsemane. That's what Gethsemane means, by the way. It means olive press. Like the fruit cannot give what's best in it unless it's pressed. The grape, the olive, the bridegroom. Whew! The face, the name. I find it fascinating. When you look at the Old Testament, there's this sort of progressive revelation and also this fascination um, with God's name and God's face. Both of those are themes that are emerging all throughout the Old Testament. Think of Moses when he draws near to the burning bush. Right? Moses, come no nearer, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. I've heard the affliction of my people in Egypt, and unto them I will send you. And Moses' response, well, if they were to ask me who you are, what shall I say? In other words, what is your name? And he responds, aye, asher, aye, I am who I am. Right? The great name, the unpronounceable name, which, by the way, all of those vowels, all of those letters in Hebrew, they're all breath sounds. Yod, ve, ha, ve, they're all breath sounds. God's name is Woo! Think about what we've been reflecting today. God's name is breath. Then consider, right, the meeting tent that God had Moses and the Israelites construct for their desert wandering. In that meeting tent, he had very specific instructions of what was going to go in that meeting tent as a prefigurement, as a preparation for the temple. Right In the meeting tent, behind the curtain, you had the Ark of the Covenant, right, which is like the throne, the mercy seat. You had the lampstand, right? The menorah, seven flames. And then you had this table that had bread offerings on it. Bread offering, the cereal offering. In Hebrew, it's the lechem hapanim, 
We're getting a lot of ancient languages tonight. <laughs> so, the Lechem Hapanim, which translates, a lot of Bibles, Bibles are translated into the bread of the presence or the show bread in other translations. But Panim means face. This is the bread of the face. Whew, right there. Think about this. Right there in the meeting tent, you have this sort of hidden trinity. You've got the throne, the mercy seat of the ark. You've got the seven flames of the lampstand. And you have the bread of the face. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son in that order that has just named them. What you see there is this longing on the part, not just simply of Israel. Yeah, it's there, but most especially it's a longing in the, in the heart of like the Lord to reveal himself, to be known more and more. This is my name. This is my face. When you know someone's name and you know someone's face, like you have access to them. Right? Think about like, you know, if you ever heard the expression like, oh, now I can put a name to the face or a face to the name. Right? That was, that, was, that was an interesting experience for me. I came to my second assignment, August 2020. Right? Everyone is still like, like wearing their masks over their faces. It's very hard to like learn parishioners when they've got half their faces covered. Because your brain fills in the rest of the details, right? <laughs> and there were faces that after the masks came down, whenever that eventually was, thanks be to God, but there were, when the masks came down, it was shocking. Like... <laughs> Like there was one guy, especially daily mask guy, who he finally came up for communion the first time without a mask on. He had the most amazing, like curly, amazing, like <laughs> cowboy mustache. And I was like, that was hidden this whole time? That is a crime. <laughs> that is a crime. But like, and then there was like faces like, that's not what I pictured. Like you should put the mask back on, right? But you had to relearn the names and the faces. But knowing the name and the face, that's how you have, it's, it's, it's what allows for intimacy, what allows for relationship. You have access to the person, right? Uh, what you see in this is this longing. What you see in this is a longing in the heart of God that we would know his name, that we would know his face. Uh, let's dig a little bit deeper into Jesus' name. His name has power. His name is power. We just heard it. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. That opening prayer is so powerful for this mass. His name is like a scalpel. Like I love that the tradition in the East is that the Jesus prayer, the, the saying the name of Jesus, Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Jesus. Like his name has power. His name is a scalpel. It divides things. It divides. It's dividing our culture right now. His name, his person, his split time in two. Like, no other name has done that. No other name has split time in two. St. Luke says, and it says in the book of the Acts, book of Acts of the Apostles, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And you cannot even say, Scripture says, you can't even say the name of Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. His name was given to him before he was even born at the Annunciation, right, by Gabriel. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. You shall name him Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua. Some of you might be, might some of you might have seen. I was wearing a sweatshirt today. It says, it says like Y E S H U A. It's a sweatshirt that really baffles people. Like, what is Ye? 
Schwa. Like, you got it. That's what it says. Yeshua. That's Yeshua. What does that name mean? Yeshua's name it means what? God saves. God saves. Here's the question for us to contemplate tonight is how does he save? How does he save? This is where our gospel tonight, this is where this feast is inviting us in perfect providence with what we've been reflecting on in the course. That's what we've been soaking in. All right, so Jesus comes to the shores of the Jordan, we heard in the gospel, and John the Baptist spies him and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. That John identifies Jesus as the Lamb. There's so much biblical typology here. Go back to Abraham and Isaac. They go up the mountain. Father, here's the wood of the sacrifice. Here's the fire. Here's the knife. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? My son, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Deep, deep significance. Little did Abraham know, little did Isaac know what, like what he would actually do. So much more than just simply the ram with its head caught in the thorns in the thicket. But he actually, to the shores of the Jordan, sends his son, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. He's come to deal with it. He's come to deal with the thing that we broke. He's come to deal with it, our shame, our debt, all the ways that we've warped ourselves and creation and all of our relationships, that he's come to set the thing right. right? Like when he said on Good Friday, it is finished, something, something now was done that before that hadn't been done. He set the thing right, that he came to confront the ancient foe. Right, the one who shows up in Genesis as a serpent is revealed in Revelation as this dragon. He's unveiled in the end as this monster who stands at the mouth of the woman to devour life. And Jesus came to confront that. I also love, you read the book of Revelation, it says he defeated him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And there's a line in, the, in, in Revelation where it says, and he breathed on him and destroyed him. Like the enemy, right? The ancient foe. It's not this cosmic battle. It's not like the Avengers versus Thanos. All that Jesus eventually simply had to do was gone. I mean, that's Pentecost right there. He came to defeat the ancient foe to rescue us from the powers of sin and death, to deal with the thing we couldn't deal with, and to transfer us into the kingdom of our Father, right? That's what he did. The, the clip, Gandalf, right? Drawing Grima Wormtongue, drawing Sauron out of Theoden King, right? This great exorcism that he affects. But is that it? Is that it? Is that how he saves? Is that... Is that what salvation consists in? That simply taking away the sins, as amazing as that is, but is that it? Like he's just come to be the divine garbage truck to like, here's my sins. I left them on the curb. Thank you very much, Jesus. Sorry, I didn't sort out the recycling. <laughs> Who does that? I mean, come on. Anyway. No, there's so much more. There's so much more. We hear John say, the Lord says, on whomever you see the spirit come down and remain he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. Well, friends, this right here, this is everything. This is utterly extraordinary. Let's linger with this. What does the word baptize mean? Baptizein in the Greek, it means to immerse. To immerse. And who is the Holy Spirit? We've been talking about this today. Holy Spirit is the love that is breathed out, or as Fulton Sheen said, sighed between the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is divine eros, like the all-consuming fire that doesn't destroy but magnifies. Or as John Paul II and Ratzinger have said, right, the Holy Spirit is person love, person gift, the expression of whatever it is the Trinity is. That's what is being given in Holy Spirit. And Jesus has come to immerse us, to submerge us into that. You don't seem impressed. Okay, let's try this again. He's He's come to submerge us, to immerse us into the very heart of God's fire, all-consuming glory, beauty, love. I don't understand that. To penetrate, to infiltrate, to impregnate our bodies, our hearts, our souls, every fiber of our flesh, like every cell, every cell in every body is like a womb. Every cell. Like that breathing exercise we were doing earlier. That breath in, we're taking in oxygen. Oxygen then gets transmitted into every cell of the body. Oxygen impregnates every cell of the body. Your whole body is filled with all of these little cells that are kapox oxygen, capable of receiving, taking in oxygen. Your whole person, this is what we mean, your whole person as a human being, you are kapox spiritus. Kapox Ruach, Kapox Dei, Kapox Eros with a capital E. That's what you are. Every, every part of you. <laughs> what does any of this mean? <laughs> uh, Mary, right? Ave Maria, gratia plena, hail Mary, full of grace. That at the Annunciation, her womb, yes, her womb is filled with grace. And her whole body was impregnated by divine fire. Every cell of her body, from eyelashes to her stomach wall, was impregnated with that breath. And what's so insane is that that is our destiny. That's our destiny. Every part will be taken up. Every part will be touched. Every part will be glorified. Every single part. Like the thing that moved the Son of Man to come to earth in the incarnation to suffer for us wasn't merely, it wasn't merely to liberate us from the enemy. It wasn't merely to rescue us from sin and death. As insane as that is, what moved him to do this was his desire to impregnate our hearts, to bring the fire that is the Trinity into every cell of your humanity. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. What earth? 
this earth, your earth, like the kingdom comes into you. Where is the kingdom? Wherever the king is, where's the king about to go? In you, in you. He's interested in you. Like, I think it's so powerful. Back to the book of Revelation. Again, like the forgiveness of sins is not, that's not the good news, the sum total of the good news of the gospel. Like in Revelation, you see Christ Christ confronting the enemy, throwing him down, right? Christus victor, Christ the conqueror, who becomes in the book of Revelation, Christus sponsus, Christ the bridegroom, that the battle transitions into a wedding, that's what's unveiled, right? That's what's unveiled in Revelation, that the one who threw down the ancient foe, the one who dealt with our sin, the one who dealt with the enemy, then gets down on one knee before the one he's rescued and says, be with me, be with me into eternity. Christ the conqueror becomes Christ the bridegroom. And here's the thing, like our hearts, I'll just speak for myself, my heart, it's so, much, it's so much easier for my heart to just sit in like the forgiveness of sins. The, like, Jesus, you just want to heal me to fix me, right? Like, let's just deal with my stuff. Like, it's easier to focus on Christus Victor, Christ the conqueror, who wants to conquer my, my brokenness. It's just terrifyingly insane to, to consider that Christus Victor wants to be Christus Sponsus of my life. Like my heart balks more at the idea that he wants to flood my being with glory. My heart balks at that more than it does that he simply wants to take away my sin. Like my sins, that's, that's finite stuff. I only have so many memories to, to give him. But infinite glory flooding my humanity. I can't even begin to fathom what that is. That he's come to immerse me into the very stream of life-giving love. And that began, that began at my baptism. And it is furthered at every single Eucharist. Like Thomas Aquinas says, in the Eucharist, you receive a pledge of future glory. It's a little foretaste. I, I, I can't fathom that. It's a great mystery. The root of that word mystery in Greek is muain which means to shut your mouth. (laughs) That before these mysteries, all you can do is just shut your mouth. You become wordless. (laughs) But I'm going to say a few more words. (laughs) I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end with this. This is from C.S. Lewis. This is from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. I know we've got a lot of reading to do. But if I could assign you something to read, <laughs> is The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. It's, I think, the best homily preached in the modern era of the church. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like a ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
Jesus, the holy name of Jesus, you have come to save us and to offer us something that we just cannot even fathom. But we say yes to it. Amen.